Because we don't have the capability to see above the trials that we meet, to keep our eyes focused on the king while counting the situation we are currently experiencing as joy. Faith works. This is the essence of James. We don't work to be saved. We work because we are saved. Without faith, without works, we too quickly become that man in the mirror staring at his face but then forgets the way he looks as soon as he turns away. But with faith, with works, we stay steadfast on this journey, progressively sanctified, knowing we'll be perfected once we reach the other side. Faith works. This is the cry of James, that faith apart from works can never be sustained, that in every day and in every way we should see this truth proclaimed because it's faith that makes us doers of the word, not just hearers. It's faith that keeps us humble, not proud. It's faith that directs our tongues to bless, not to curse. It's faith that causes us to show mercy, not judgment. It's faith that leads us to true religion, not its empty substitute. It is faith that's causing us to preach the good news to every tribe, tongue, and nation with every breath that we breathe. And it will be faith that causes us to worship our God for all eternity. This is the message of James. Faith works. Last week, we heard an incredible message from Pastor Marcel on the subject of partiality. Have we become judges with evil thoughts, giving partial treatment to those who perhaps have more money in their wallet or more clout or more influence or more beauty or fill in the blank? Have we become those judges, giving partial treatment to those we might be tempted to do so giving them the seat of honor, and to others we might just say, why don't you sit over here? And the big question that we're going to be asking ourselves this morning is, why would we ever be tempted to do something like that? And James is going to help articulate and answer that question for us this morning twofold. The first thing we need to recognize is we need to have an accurate picture of God's mercy. And number two, right on the heels of that, intricately connected to that first point, we need to have an accurate picture of the costliness of God's mercy for us. And by doing so, when we can take a look at God's mercy and the cost of God's mercy, when we look in the mirror, it will give us an accurate picture of ourself and also an accurate picture of our neighbor. If you have your Bibles here this morning, and I hope you do, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of James. While you're doing that, I just need a show of hands. How many of you here this morning have your Bibles or your Bible apps with you, loud and proud? Just look around the room for a second. That's pretty awesome, pretty amazing. So we checked with the group outside. They told me that with all the children present in the room, we have 48% of us with Bibles. You omit that by 70 kids, and that puts us at 59%. No, I'm kidding. 68% 
is what we hit this morning. So 68% of us have brought our Bibles, so Pastor Marcel will shave his head after the service. All right, we're going to be looking at the book of James, James chapter 2, starting at verse 10. Hear now God's word. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Circle, highlight, underline. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you are still a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, what we need to see right on the front end here is uh, James, he wants us to have a very clear picture of what God's law tells us. And so he issues two reminders to us this morning. And the first one goes a little bit like this. We can't choose which laws are important. We can't choose which laws are important. The ones that matter most to us and ones that are, let's just say, not so important. And he gives us an example, right, of that of a murderer. You could just picture this courtroom scene in your mind that a murderer stands before the judge and the judge says, how do you plea? And the murderer says, well, before I give my plea, judge, I just, I need to make a statement to you. I've always found murder to be one of those culturally regressive laws. I don't really believe in that so much. I I don't think that's really important to me or valuable to me. And the judge will say, are you serious? And, And yet, also, judge, I think it's important for you to take into consideration all of the good deeds I've done in other areas of my life. Like, for example, my driving record, it's clean. I've never committed conspiracy to commit a crime. I've never committed theft. I've never committed grand larceny. Aside from that wee little murder over here, I'm practically a perfect person. What's the judge going to say? You can't pick and choose which of the laws are important to you and which are not important. If you are breaking the law, then you are by definition a law breaker. And I think if we're honest with ourselves this morning... This is something that we as Christians might wrestle with in a very different way. And this is one of the ways that we can commit idolatry. We make God in our own image. And here's what this looks like. The sins that we're really good at avoiding, those are the sins that God absolutely detests. He hates those sins. And the sins that, you know, we might be struggling with in our life a little bit, well, don't worry. Those are the ones that are lowercase sins. Those are the green sins. And God says, Justin, it's okay. I got that covered. And James, he means to tell us, if you've ever broken the law, regardless of what that is, you are by definition a law breaker. That's, that's the issue that each and every one of us has as a result of our sin nature, the traitor within. That's what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. As a result of our sin nature, James can say, even though he's never met anyone from Gateway and he wrote this 2,000 years ago, he can say with absolute precision and absolute certainty, I know that you are a lawbreaker. And you can't pick and choose which of God's laws are ultimately important. 
Take a look again at verse 8. If your Bibles are open, this is what Pastor Marcel led us through last week. A good reminder. It says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as you love yourself, you are doing right. Great job. Now again, picture this. If we have an accurate picture of who we are, our legal standing before the throne of God, if we actually know who we are, then we will know that we fall dangerously short of this standard. No one in this room loves their neighbor perfectly. No one came in this morning clean. Each and every one of us are lawbreakers. In fact, there's only two different distinctions of persons. Uh, They fall into one of two different camps. You are either a lawbreaker or you're Jesus. And we all find ourselves over here. And that leads to the second point in your sermon guide. We are all guilty and there is only one Savior. We are all guilty and there is only one Savior. Savior, Absolutely no one can stand before the throne of God and lay out the the whole list of good deeds and say, here are all the reasons, God, why I am deserving of a stairway to heaven, why I'm deserving to get that golden ticket on the basis of my merit and my good deeds in order for me to go to heaven. God will say, no, you are by definition a law breaker. And again, one of the myths that James helped crush a couple of weeks ago is uh, this concept that God grades on a curve. As long as I'm sharper than the average tool in the shed, maybe if I'm like in the top 20% or so, if I'm a really morally righteous person, then maybe I can earn my stairway to heaven. See, Jesus, he had very similar people who thought this way in the first century And he called them a brood of vipers who would not inherit the kingdom of God because they thought that they could enter into heaven on the basis of their moral pedigree. That's what we read in verse 10 again. Take a look at it. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking... What's the word? Help me out. What's the word? That's interesting. If you've stumbled at just one point, you are guilty of breaking all of it? The entire law? What does that mean? You see, one of the things that we need to recognize as followers of Jesus is this this crossroads, this juxtaposition that James wants us to understand. On the one hand, we need to recognize that each and every one of us, we are a wretch, a worm, a sinner through and through, and we are deserving of the wrath of God. And on the other hand, we are also none of those things. As a result of Christ's work on the cross, we are redeemed, we are set free, we are perfect, we are spotless, we are without blemish. We are both of these things at exactly the same time, and we have to hold them in tension, always. And recognizing that what creates a humble heart is in recognizing our dire need for a Savior. But what gives us a great sense of clarity and hope and courage and joy is in recognizing that Christ has already paid the debt. So we have to hold on to both of them at the same time. 
You see, we tend to think that one of the ways to be far from God is to break all the rules. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And yet James tells us, and Jesus has told us, that there is an equally destructive path, and it is this, doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Saying, I will be a morally righteous person, and I will try to earn my own way, to earn my keep. And Jesus is the one who called that a despicable religion. To that same group, the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, the people who were the moral elites of the day, he told them a radical message that even the prostitutes and the pimps will enter into the kingdom of God before you to the shock and the horror of the crowd. How could that possibly be the case? How could it possibly be that these Pharisees who are almost perfect, who are trying their best to be morally righteous, that Jesus could say that word to them? Because they're missing a fundamental aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to break it down in the form of a question that only you can ask, answer of yourself. Is Christ your Savior or are you? Is Christ your Savior or are you? It has to be one or the other. It's not a combination of both. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ and then you put a big fat period at the end. And I think at times we wrestle with that notion in seeking to to live into this reality because here's what we need to see. If Christ is your savior, then Christ is also your neighbor's savior. And if you are your own savior, then it stands to reason that your neighbor is also his or her own savior. You can only have it one of two ways. And then we get to verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. The law that gives freedom. What what does that mean? You see, I, I think for a lot of young people growing up in the church, not to paint with too broad of a brush, but I think there are many who fall into this trap into thinking that the word of God is just page after page after page after page of rules and regulations that you'll never be able to keep. Four columns, two on each page. Here's what you have to do. Here's what you can't do. Don't touch this. Don't do that. And of course, there's an element of God's law in this, but they're they're missing the big picture. The purpose of the law is not simply to tell you what you may not do. It is for the sake of human flourishing. Let me just give you an example. What's, What's something else that has a lot of rules? Marriage, right? I remember on my wedding day, which was nine years ago in a couple of days, I gave my marriage vows to my wife, Julie. I told her that I would love her and cherish her till death do us part, in life and in death, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, regardless of the circumstances that we may face, I will love you. And do you know what Julie said? She had the audacity to tell me that I had to be committed to that promise, get this, 100% of the time. Could you imagine? 
She said, I had to be faithful to her always, even on the weekends. At all times, I had to always be faithful to her. Now, we, we see the humor in this, but this is what the Word of God is doing as well in recognizing that God isn't simply giving us a subset or a series of rules, but He is helping us understand how we can truly flourish and thrive. The reason why we follow the rules in a marriage is so that the marriage can thrive. The reason why we follow the rules in God's Word is because He knows the manner in which we work best and the many, many other ways in which we do not. And if we truly want to experience joy and fulfillment and happiness and peace, it is in abiding by what God tells us in his word. And those are those moments when, uh, for those of us who maybe for many years in our life were not a follower of Jesus, and then you encountered Jesus, and you began to live according to the word of God, perhaps your friends and your family members and your coworkers and your neighbors, they started taking note and recognizing there's something different about him, there's something different about her. In the midst of the circumstances that he's facing, driving the same old clunker for the last 20 years, being stuck in the same marriage, the same job, he still has joy, he still has content, He still has peace. What is this about? What has he found? What has she found that I don't quite have? You've encountered the good news of the gospel. And it changes your life. It changes every aspect of your life. The old you is a distant memory. And the new you is walking in accordance with the Spirit's. Now, there's also two symmetrical realities that we need to hold in tension. James is giving us these series of juxtapositions that we have to hang on to in order to have a proper perspective of who we are in Jesus. Now, here's the first reality we need to take note of. One day, we will face the judge. One day, we will face the judge. That's verse 12. It says this. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged. He's saying, why don't you go ahead and live your lives as though you are going to face the judge someday. Now, let's just be honest for a second. Kids, for the rest of the kids who are still here, not off the kids' church, we tend to be more obedient when mom's in the room, don't we? Right? All kids are obedient when mom is in the room. But the question is, what happens when mom and dad leave the room? And I think the same can be true for us as followers of Jesus. Now, here's the thing that James wants us to take note of. Imagine for a moment if we served an omnipotent God. What does that mean? An always present God that he knows all of your actions, he knows all your behaviors, he knows all of your secret thoughts and everything we've done and everything we've thought has been written down in the scroll of your life and imagine if there will come a day, an actual day in which God will lay out that scroll and he will say, Justin, give an account for your life. Why'd you do this here? Why didn't you do that there? Imagine if that day would actually come. And James says, you should live your life that way because this isn't just a fictional story. This is actually true. One day you will face the judge. And oftentimes for many of us, even as Christians, we don't live that way. 
in thinking that way. That God knows our thoughts and our actions and he's always watching and always listening. So evaluate your life right now. Do we truly get just how ugly we are in the face of God? How broken and sinful we are? Do we actually know and understand that when we face the judge, all will be laid bare and we will be naked and ashamed and we will have nowhere to turn? Do we actually know that? And right on the heels of that, we need to understand the second point. Dear Christian, your judgment day was yesterday. Your judgment day was yesterday. Now you might be thinking to yourself, how can that be? How can we say in one sense that one day we will face the judge and in another sense our judgment day is yesterday? How do we hold these things in tension? What does this look like? In a world that tells you constantly every single day when you walk out your door that your worth is measured by your performance or the size of your house or the size of your yacht or the size of your wallet or the size of your dress or the size of your Facebook account. The good news of the gospel says this. The way that you are measured is with these three words. I'm with Christ. I'm with Christ. If your Bibles are open, I want you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. If you're two-thirds through your Bible, you're going to land probably on Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Keep turning to the right. Acts, Romans, and then a bunch of books that are going to end in Ian's, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 6. This is something that the Apostle Paul fleshes out a little more fully, but James is already assuming this. So it's something that we need to have fresh in our mind as we're thinking about this this morning. It's a, it's a little bit long, but just track with me, and I, I want you to notice two things on the front end. Notice how many times the Apostle Paul mentions a reference with him or in him, and also recognize the tense of the adjectives and the verbs and the nouns. Here's what he says. So then, just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and every authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, and he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross." 
Chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So what is Paul saying here? What do we need to understand about the Christian life? We need to recognize that our worth is not based on other people's acceptance of us, not the things that we can acquire or accumulate, not the size of our wallet, not the size of our house, not anything like that, not on the basis of our own merit. Our acceptance is based on those three words. I'm with Christ. And now that you mention it, we can see it everywhere, can't we? Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, as you receive Christ as Lord, walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him. You've been filled up like a, like a helium-filled balloon. How? In Him. Verse 12, Christ was buried and you were buried. How? With Him. Verse 13, you were once dead to your sin, but now you're made alive. How? With Him. It goes on and on and on with him, in him, with him, in him. And to really drive this home, the Apostle Paul says something that is absolutely astounding and mesmerizing when you think about it. So let me ask you, what tense were all the verbs in? Past, present, or future? Past. Now how does that work? For us to say things like this, you have been filled up you were buried. You were dead to sin. You were raised back to life. Now, just think about this. We know that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth. He went to the cross called Golgotha, the land of the skull. He died. He was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again. He ascended on high. All those things we know are attributed to Jesus. But to you? To me? How can that be? Because I'm standing right here and I don't remember any of those things. How can it possibly be? And then it becomes abundantly clear. Christ's life is my life. Christ's life is my life. Do you see what this means? It means that for the Christian, the verdict is already in. So you picture that courtroom scene in which God tells us that we are a lawbreaker and he rolls out the story of our life and he says, Justin, give an account for yourself and I'm laying there naked and ashamed and I have nothing to my name and there's no way I can get out of the situation. In that precise moment, Jesus stands before me, shielding me from the wrath of God and he says, do not look at the imperfection of Justin, look at the perfection of me. And because Christ has already paid for that debt, it is as good as done. And that is why we can say, we will stand before a judge one day. We will. We will. But for those of us who are in Christ, that day is already behind us because we have been raised with Christ in God. So what do we do with all of this? How do we live into this from day to day? I want to give you three notes for the remainder of our time this morning. The first one is this. Start by looking in the mirror. 
Start by looking in the mirror. I want to read another story to you. This is coming from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 23. This is the parable of the wicked servant. When the disciples come up to Jesus and they say, how many times should we forgive our neighbor? Should we do it seven times? Because I know the, the custom and the law of uh, Jesus' day was you were supposed to save, uh, forgive your neighbor three times. But the disciples, they know Jesus is a little bit different, so maybe seven times? And Jesus says, I don't tell you seven times, but 70 times seven times. And perhaps some of the disciples were doing math in their head. They go, okay, 490 times. All right. So 491, I can just let my neighbor have it. No, that's not the point either. He says this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, saying precisely the same words. Be patient with me. I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay off the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. He said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back everything that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Remember the words of James? Verse 13, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. You know, the interesting thing about this story, I kind of did a little bit of uh, math this week to try and get a sense of how much this debt actually was. What is 10,000 bags of gold? What is that? Well, in terms of time, a bag of gold was the equivalent of 6,000 days of work. And you times that by 10,000, what this man had to do in order to pay back his debt was to work for 225,000 years. Then he could have paid back this debt. Or in terms of currency, to try and get a modern-day interpretation of this, it would be roughly 10 times the U.S. national debt, $220 trillion. That's how much this man owed. So then I thought to myself, how much would this be in comparison to the richest people on the planet? Like Mark Zuckerberg and Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos and all the Waltons and all these rich people put together. The 20 richest people on the planet. You liquidate all their assets and you try to pay off this debt. How much would it pay? Less than 1%. And so here he is. And the irony of all of this is what he says next. It's almost humorous if it wasn't so sad. He says, give me time. I'll pay back what I owe. 
Now here's, here's a man who doesn't have a proper perspective. He doesn't have a good understanding of his debt because if he did, he would have said, there is no way I can pay this debt. Instead, he has the audacity to say, I'll pay this off. And of course, the master forgives him. Then he finds this servant. He beats him to a pulp. He says, pay what you owe for 100 denarii. Do you know what that is? 100 days of work. Far less than what he owed the master. Now, this is what James is getting at here. When we have a proper perspective of our indebtedness to God, it will, have us, it will give us a proper perspective when it comes to how we relate to our neighbor. And that's what we need to see here. Number two, we need to focus on the cost of God's mercy for you. Focus on the cost of God's mercy for you. Look at the cost. Look at what Christ has done for us. We call this the doctrine of justification that Christ, when he stood before us and canceled our debt, our debt, God the Father takes the mallet, he slams it down, and he says, you are set free on account of what Christ has done, not because of anything that you or I have done. His wrath is satisfied. But how? I think, for example, of passages like Galatians 3, verse 13, which says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Or Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We have this debt, this monumental debt, 10 times the U.S. national debt, 225,000 days of labor in our roughly 80 years of life on this earth, something we could never pay. And you have to imagine for this wicked servant somewhere between being forgiven 10,000 bags of gold and beating his servant to a pulp, he must have thought to himself, I am completely justified in my actions. I'm completely justified in receiving this monumental debt being paid and beating up my neighbor. But it's not until we have this proper perspective does everything begin to change. And number three, forgive like your life depends on it. Forgive like your life depends on it. Who in your life, in no way, shape, or form, is deserving of your forgiveness? That person, those people who have harmed you, who have hurt you, who are those people? It's never easy to forgive. But what gives us the proper perspective is in recognizing our own indebtedness to God. You see, that's what gives us humility. That's what gives us comfort in the midst of the circumstances that we face. You know, many of us know the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. But many of us don't know the words that come immediately after that. In verse 14, it says this. 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. People of God, Christians ought to be the most forgiving people on the planet. And it's not because they're so gracious. It's because they have a proper perspective and an understanding of their indebtedness to God, his mercy and his grace and his comfort that he provides for us. When we are able to look in the mirror and to see ourselves for who we truly are, and then to see what Christ has done for us so that we can be set free, that is what gives us the perspective to be loving to our neighbor as well. And so here's James. He's pleading with his original listeners and he's pleading with us this morning too. He's saying, focus on the cost of God's mercy for you. Look in the mirror. Look at your indebtedness. And then also forgive like your life depends on it. Because it does. Would you pray with me? Our Holy Father and our God, we thank you that you are not a God who sits idly by, but who provides his Holy Spirit to begin that sanctifying work in us so that we could be modeled, shaped into the image of your Son. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would forgive us for the ways in which we have spat in your face with respect to the grace that you have given to us. That you would change our hearts in such a way that we would be modeled by humility, by grace and mercy. That our friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors, they would see that in us and that it would serve as a witness to your gospel. We ask that you would never give up on us, but that you would continue that sanctifying work in us from this day forward. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.